Support for this show is brought to you by our friends at Bloomerang. Bloomerang offers donor management, online fundraising, and volunteer management software that helps small to medium nonprofits like First Tee of Greater Akron. After just one year with Boomerang, First Tee of Greater Akron doubled their unique donors, improved donor stewardship, and raised more funds. Keep listening to hear their experience or visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising. Legacy isn't just a dollar sign. It is the impact and meaning of their life while they're alive and after they're gone. Welcome back to What The Fundraising. I'm your host, Mallory Erickson, and this podcast is for impact leaders and change makers who are looking to fundamentally change the way they lead and fundraise. This episode is brought to you by our friends at DonorPerfect. Today, I'm interviewing Kimberly Pittman Schultz. Kimberly's impressive career spans over two decades. Her work with universities and global child development organizations has allowed her to cultivate a rich understanding of giving. With a knack for addressing uncomfortable realities such as grieving and end-of-life planning, Kimberly brings a brave authenticity to any conversation. In this conversation, she shares valuable insights on legacy giving and building human connections with donors. We cover three common myths about legacy giving and donor relationships, and Kimberly shares an important truth about legacy giving and how it can actually deepen donor relationships. I thought it was so important to talk about legacy giving at the same time as we talk about the elephant in the room, grief and end of life. It's tender and vulnerable and so important because if we're afraid about talking about these things, we'll miss huge opportunities to give our community members ways to leave a lasting impact. There is so much inside this episode, so let's dive in so you can meet Kimberly. Welcome, everyone. I am so excited to be here today with Kimberly Pittman Schultz. Kimberly, welcome to What the Fundraising. Hi, Mallory. I am so excited to be here after listening to some really great episodes in recent months. I'm pleased to be able to have this conversation with you and your listeners. Really excited to dive in to our topic today. Why don't we start with you just giving everyone a little background on the work that you do and what brings you to our conversation today? Yeah, I have an interesting background. We connected, I think, in a very interesting way because I currently work in the intersection of this background in philanthropy, but also currently working with people struggling with the loss of someone they love, working through grief and rebuilding their life. And it seems like those might be two very different pathways, but they're really, really connected. And I know when we had an earlier conversation We talked about how much loss, grief, you know, life challenges influence philanthropy are part of people's giving story. So my background is I worked in philanthropy for over 20 years. I've been in senior leadership roles with universities and an international child development organization. And I've been in frontline fundraising roles where I've been a major and plan gift officer or director of plan giving. Plan giving is one of my absolute favorite parts of working with people. Early in my career, I couldn't imagine talking about death and taxes. And at one point, I got so good at it, I had some older donors that I once had an older donor introduce me to his friends as the death and taxes lady. So I bring over 20 years experience working one-to-one with donors, as well as leading teams of gift officers, working with very large organizations. And I've also worked at the community level when I was president of a community foundation 
and also provided support to a range of nonprofits in the region that I served. At that point, that was in Pennsylvania. And then currently, I work in this grief space as a grief and life transitions mentor, coach, and I'm also a book author. I've got a couple books as well out there. So, so that's me in sort of a nutshell. You know, I loved learning about your career. I can't remember the first article that I read of yours, but I have not done a lot of bequest giving in my career. And it's been a question that's come up a lot in Power Partners and around the show. You know, can you do more around legacy planning and estate giving? And I'm interested in the tactical side of things, although I I know that starts to venture into sort of the legal pieces of it. But I'm really interested in this the vulnerability that I think the conversation around legacy giving creates. And I remember thinking through my executive coaching work and habit and behavior design work, I've overcome a lot of my fears around talking about money. And then I started to think about legacy giving. And I was like, now I have to talk about the two most vulnerable things, (laughs) end of life and money in the same conversation. And gosh, that feels complicated. And I know I feel like a lot of folks who talk about legacy giving talk about that it's not about the end of life, that it's about your legacy and the impact that you want to make in the world. But I think for fundraisers, it still really does feel like incredibly vulnerable to be entering into a conversation around what feels like this really tender life transition. And so I love your orientation to this work because you also come at it from that like grief coaching lens. And so I think there's both like the legacy planning conversation that I want to have, but then also how should fundraisers be thinking about communication after a donor has passed away or i you know i've had a lot of things have come up in the program where they have to navigate relationships with the children of people who are deeply involved in their organization and sometimes even they've lost someone in the middle of a multi-year pledge and what does that look like how do they navigate that <laughs> yes. so let's just start wading into the uncomfortable waters of like grief and giving and just start to talk us through how we might think about this. I actually have really come to love this topic. Let me back into it just a little bit to put some more recent context. In fall of 2019, I've been a member of the National Committee on Charitable Gift Planning. It's had different names over the years. I think that's the most current iteration. But one of the ways that I usually, when I go to conferences, I find if I speak, I don't have to pay registration fee and I get a couple free nights. So I tend to speak for my training during my career. Those of us who work in philanthropy know how you try to stretch a dollar, right? One of the things I'd realized after working in this field a lot of years, Mallory, and, and I think a lot of your listeners will relate to this, is how often, especially if you're starting to talk about plan giving or blended giving, because plan giving can really help leverage a current gift as well. So it helps people see how they can give more than maybe they thought they could give. But so often, we're so afraid to talk about death or dying, or even the phrase end of life, or this idea that somehow we might not each expire, you know, and it's just sort of this basic fact of life. And what I found is it's not only people who work in philanthropy, fundraisers and leaders, but a lot of attorneys I've worked with and CPAs that are, that's their whole focus is elder law and end of life planning will often, and I've had donors say to me, nobody ever wants to talk about what this is really about. So I gave a presentation nationally that was so well received in 2019 that I was invited to give it as a webinar in 2020. 
And then you know what happened in the spring of 2020? We had COVID hit. And I remember thinking, do we really want to give a talk about death and plan giving at this time? And we thought about canceling it because if you can remember how really truly frightening the pandemic was, I was scheduled to speak in early May. And at that point, you had a lot of people dying in New York and in Italy. And there was so much feedback. They actually surveyed their members and said, no, they did. And we had over 500 people across the country registered for that webinar. And it was the best webinar attendance they'd ever had by multiples. And I throw all that out, not to sound like some superhero, because I absolutely not. It's, you know, I didn't always easily talk about death and taxes and grief and dying, but it is such a fundamental part. And what I find is not every donor necessarily wants to, quote, go there. When you get to the point that you are working with people who are either later in their life, who are dealing with illness. I mean, many of us dealing who are not plan givers, but just working with major gifts or annual gifts, just people renewing their annual giving. You know, they're dealing with life-threatening cancer or other illnesses. They may not be that far along in life, but these are very real considerations. And sometimes we can be so good at avoiding the conversation that we don't create the opportunity to, first of all, love our donors and support them and let them know we care about them but to create space for them to be able to talk about what they need to talk about. Because, you know, one of the things I've just discovered over so many years of doing the work is how much loss really does play into giving. I mean, we've all worked on scholarships, memorial scholarships, but it comes up in other ways. It comes up with losses when people, I've worked with executives that are not the type to wear their heart on their sleeves And when you really start digging down into what I call their donor story, getting past the, oh, why are you giving? Well, you know, I want to give back. I really, you know, this is meaningful. And you kind of say, well, where did that come from? To keep asking the five whys like kids do. But why is that so important? You get to this place where suddenly they open up and they tell you a story about when they were five or when their wife was struggling with something or with their mother or their father or a friend. And you suddenly get this really tender story. And sometimes even they're surprised, like, I never made that connection before that. Yeah, that's why I want to help children or yeah, that's why healthcare is so important to me. So I throw this out of just saying that part of what I feel like those of us who work in this amazing field of philanthropy is to have a little bit of fearlessness. And when I was asked, what's the number one thing that could help me, whether I'm talking about major gift, plan giving, annual giving, whether I'm a board member or I'm an ED and I just need to have some context is to first explore your own experience with loss and death and grief, because I think the other thing that makes it hard is not only the awkwardness with the other person, it's the awkwardness with our own selves and how we feel about those topics. So that's what really made me lean more and more into this, is realizing that as a field, this is such a big part of sort of like the elephant in the philanthropy living room that we touch a little bit. We touch the trunk and we look at the big feet but we don't actually ever really reach out and touch the elephant. And again, not all of our donors want to go there, but more than you think. And then we're also in this time right now where sort of like the good birth period back in the 60s and 70s, we're kind of in this good death period too, where there's a whole subgroup of individuals, including our donors, who are also focused on how do I plan a meaningful end of my life? I don't want to go the way my mother or my grandmother went. And so again, that creates an opportunity for some truly amazing, transformative conversations with individuals about legacy isn't just a dollar sign. It is the impact and meaning of their life while they're alive and after they're gone. 
I so appreciate you sharing that whole orientation to your work and the role that this plays in how our donors are thinking about things. What do you think are some of the limiting beliefs that we hold about fundraisers? You sort of shared some of them or some of our biggest fears that hold us back from going there. And then, well, let me ask that question, then I'll hold my next one so I don't stack them. <laughs> okay, that's good. You'll not just kind of forget where I'm in in the stack, but that sounds good. Yeah, I think there are quite a few. I think sometimes our own fears around how we perceive death and dying and that we don't always want to think about it. I think our own experiences losing people and beloved animals. You know, I would really point this out when you're working particularly, it works with all ages, but particularly people later in life. One of my very early career major in plan giving roles with the UC Davis School of Veterinary Medicine. So I worked with a lot of dog and cat people. And so often people at the end of their lives their kids and grandkids may not be coming to see them, but their dog, their cat, their rabbit, um, their bird, that is their closest companion in the world. And so what I would say is we have these own beliefs about loss and hierarchies of loss and to really kind of touch into where our own pain points are. I think the biggest fear I hear from fundraisers is if I start to go into that door, that my door cracks a little bit and the donor, and sometimes our donors will force us, okay, I'm sure you've had this experience where a donor just goes there. They want to talk. You're not paid by the hour, right? Unlike their attorney, their CPA, others they may be working with, you're sitting in their living room or at a restaurant with a cup of tea with them and you're all ears. And so sometimes people absolutely open up about their fears of dying the difficult relationships they have with family. I mean, sometimes we're sitting there saying, TMI, TMI, TMI. But instead of pulling back from that, what I have learned, and maybe it's just my, my own desire to understand and be there for people, is to lean into that. So I think a big fear is that a donor is going to open that door and start talking about things that are deeply personal, that are painful, that are spiritual. You know, we all have different belief systems, right? And are we going to run up against belief systems? And how do we navigate that gracefully? Because we don't want to get in debates with our donors about anything like that. You know, to get kind of push ourselves past that fear of, or even the fear that what if I cry? What if my donor starts crying? And what if I start crying? And I would just say, one of my favorite mindsets is, so what? Guess what? You just discovered you're human. Guess what? We just made an amazing connection as two people on the planet in a certain space and time. So I think that's a big fear. I think there's a fear that that we'll kind of lose our space a little bit as a fundraiser. There's this fine line, I think, especially major plan giving people walk and giving people too, but I see it more often with major and plan gift directors or officers where the relationship can become so deep with a donor that it can start to feel too friendly. And so sometimes it's actually harder to raise money when you start to feel like you're asking a friend instead of asking a donor, or the donor may start to look at you. I mean, we've certainly had people who've had donors want to include them in our state plans. And so that's certainly a fear that some fundraisers have, that they're somehow going to breach that very delicate balance between being a caring professional who's leaning in as a human with them versus we're not friends and buddies and we're not family members. It's a very nuanced place to be. So I think those all become fears, but I also think they're very overcomable. And then I think also there's a lot of fear around when we think about plan giving. The tendency I find is to immediately assume, I don't know what a charitable remainder trust is. Well, how, when do you offer someone a gift annuity? What if they do want to do a bequest? What's involved with that? And most planned giving doesn't actually start with the vehicle. Those are vehicles. 
before you pick a vehicle, you want to know where you're going and why you're going there. And so what I would also say in those situations is just don't freak out about the what or the vehicle, but lean into what is it that you want to do with your money and your resources that's meaningful to you. And just really listen to that and lean into it and give them a chance. And from there, you can always figure out what tool or tactic or approach can help solve that. But the I always say the forms come after the focus. Okay. I was taking some notes because there are just so many pieces that you shared in there that I think are so interesting. And, you know, it's interesting. Some of my largest donors came to my wedding and they did ultimately and have become close friends of mine. And I was thinking about the difference between those relationships though, and how I think about their philanthropy versus when I first started friends and family fundraising and sort of how uncomfortable I felt asking friends to give money to the work that I was doing. And I'm just curious sort of what you think about this, because for me, some of the people that I think about who came to my wedding, who, you know, were some of the largest donors of the organization that I was running, we did cry together on like multiple occasions around so many different things. We were ultimately in a lot of our times together talking about some of the most heartbreaking things we were seeing in the world around us, sometimes really inspiring and moving things that were leading us to just happy or deep feeling tears. And I remember I had this really amazing experience with someone who's now a dear friend of mine who was a donor at the time. And I said something in one of our meetings and she started to cry. And my initial reaction, I was a lot younger and I think a lot less in touch at that point with my own comfort around different emotions, sort of what you're talking about. And my initial reaction was, I'm so sorry. Like, I'm so sorry for making you cry. And her response, which has taught me so much, and I think about this regularly, was, don't be sorry. Like, I love that I can access my emotions so freely. Like, this is a gift. And to be able to do so in connection with you. And I think that piece around vulnerability, and then also knowing that you can have that vulnerability, and I did with plenty of other donors that never became close friends of mine. But that was a particular relationship where I felt like where we could keep our alignment around philanthropy intact. And a part of our relationship became that alignment. And that was really a catalyst for a lot of the relationship. And then it expanded beyond there too. But I never felt more uncomfortable talking about money with her because that was such a core piece of what had created the connection in the first place, which is what can I do with these resources that I have that are going to make a big impact in our community. And so I just wanted to share that story because I think it encapsulates a lot of the different pieces that you're talking about and all to say that I was very uncomfortable when that first started happening to me. And I think there is this piece of needing to do it and survive it and wade into those waters and see how it feels and navigate that space to ultimately know like you can go there, you can have these conversations and facilitate them in a number of different ways and in a number of different formats of closeness and relationship. And I'm thinking about for folks who are listening to this, who are like, okay, but like, 
how do I even start a conversation like this? Like, what are some, and maybe this is getting really tactical, but like, what are some transition sentences that you would recommend that even start to test the waters of whether or not a donor's open to this conversation? What question might they ask that creates permission for them to open this level of vulnerability and conversation with the donor. Yeah, that's right. First, T of Greater Akron needed to switch from an outdated donor management system to something more user-friendly. With Bloomerang, they found that and more. Executive Director Josh Smith commented, We love Bloomerang. It saved time. It's helped us raise more funds. By investing in a donor database that they actually loved using, First Tee of Greater Akron was able to raise more funds and continue creating lasting change in their community. To listen to the full interview with First Tee of Greater Akron, visit bloomerang.com backslash what the fundraising or click the link in the show notes. Really good question, Mallory. And of course, there's a few different ways to do it. And of course, it always depends on who you have sitting right in front of you. First of all, kudos for having that depth of relationship with your donors and being able to have that depth of relationship and the donor's not confused in terms of the donor cares about you and your family, you care about them, but it hasn't become so close that it's muddied the waters about where our relationship started and where our relationship ultimately goes, right? The ability to sit down and talk about these philanthropic opportunities. So kudos to you because in this field, as I'm sure you've encountered, a lot of people talk about their donor relationships, their donor relationships. And when you drill down, you find out, well, they had a call with this person four months ago and they had one discovery visit with someone two years ago and they're still in their portfolio. That's not a relationship. That's a connection, right? But I always look at a relationship as if if you call and the donor knows who you are and asks how you're doing and cares as much as you do about them, that's where you really have a relationship. So I just really want to say kudo because I think that's something that often gets lost in the fundraising world in terms of what we call a relationship. And there will be different depths. I mean, different donors and different roles in the organization for that donor and the role they play philanthropically, leadership-wise. It's going to be different relationships. But I think the goal is to get to a point. I mean, I can remember early in my career meeting with several donors in the Bay Area. And I'm in California, and I was at that time as well, even though I've been elsewhere. And I can remember calling a donor up and having the donor say, well, now, are you the lady from the vet school? Are you the lady from the Marine Mammal Center? You know, it's like, that's the clue that we don't have a relationship, right, that I've got to work on so she knows which one I am, right? So I just want to say kudos to you on that and really carrying that relationship in such an open way. In terms of sort of testing, this is kind of like stepping out on a frozen lake and you're not quite sure how frozen the lake is, you know, and are you going to step out there and fall through and drown or are you going to step out there and is that ice going to support you? I think part of it is just what you would do with any kind of when you're trying to build a sort of one-to-one donor interaction and donor relationship is to really just start by being curious about them and asking, not being afraid of the question why, while we don't want to sound like nagging five-year-olds or interrogators, you know, I mean, sometimes I've seen people early career come in almost like interrogators and we don't want to do that either. But I think when you're having a conversation and they express an interest in, let's just say the children's wing at the hospital or something, you know, to kind of say, well, why is that of interest? Well, you know, I've always, you know, I've always cared about kids. Well, well, why is that? Is there a child who's special? 
to really try to unlock what I call that giving story, that very human story, because many donors have not really been asked very much, even at some pretty high levels, their why, their why for giving. And a lot of times we'll settle for, well, children are very important. Or, you know, when I was a kid, my sister died and that's what I wanted to do. I think if someone says something to you like, well, now that you ask, you know, as a kid, I lost my sister to a disease and now I really want to help. Well, is that something you'd like to talk about? I'm curious. What must it have been like to lose your sister? How old were you? I would say that is where you start to, you're remembering they're a donor, a potential donor, but you're also thinking them about a human being that you just really care about who just offered something that's pretty, wow. You know, and again, the tendency is like, okay, make a mental note. Her daughter, her sister died when she was little, but you know, for your donor notes later on, right? But the human element is to kind of just take a little step in, step into that ice a little bit and test it. And sometimes the donor will say, well, you know, it's just too painful. That's okay. Then you kind of step back on the eyes. Other times they'll say, well, you know, to tell you the truth, I haven't talked about this in a while. And they'll begin to tell that story. And what can be really amazing is how this can be a gift to your donor. This isn't just about getting to that donor story so we can get more resources from them, right? It's a gift because so often people have not been invited by the organizations they're working with and that they're funding and the people they're working with to go to that next more human level. And sometimes they don't even know, like I said earlier, they may not really know exactly what's motivating this drive. I know for me, I used to work for Child Fund International. And I remember for myself, I hadn't even walked that path. And I actually had a donor ask me, well, what makes you want to work for this organization? And I, I hadn't thought of, I mean, I kind of like, well, I care about children. I, but when she asked me that question that particular time, it led me back to losing my sisters as a toddler in a house fire that I survived that they didn't. And it just kind of unlocked for me. And then I said, well, I had a lost you. Well, I'd really like to know more. And sometimes donors are curious about you. And then as I shared, guess what? She opened up and it was very emotional, but there was such a connection there at that point that I really got to understand her motivation. And I got to have that experience myself of sometimes your donors. It wasn't until I shared that story that I suddenly realized, well, of course, I'm really interested in helping children because you know, it really was an aha for me. So it, it's really an opportunity to give that aha to donors. And you just start by asking those very simple human questions. I mean, it's not sort of like, well, we're both going to die. So tell me what would be meaningful, right? But I think you just look at it as you would talking with a neighbor in that sense. So what makes you want to do blah, blah, blah? Tell me more. One of my favorite lines is tell me more or why is that? Or is there anything I should know about that? Or is there a little bit more? Do you feel comfortable sharing? And I think the other side of that, Mallory, is also, and that kind of goes back to before you step into the conversation, asking yourself, how much of myself am I willing to share? Some of us are more comfortable sharing than others. We also know we don't want the meaning to be about us, right? I used to have little buttons for some of my newer frontline fundraisers that said, it's not about me. It's not about me, these conversations. It's about our donors. But so often, relationship is two-way. And many of the donors that care about our organizations come to care about us as human beings. So having some thought about how comfortable you are sharing your own personal. I mean, there have been times when people have asked me about political beliefs where I just said, you know, that's something I just do not talk about. And it's okay. It's absolutely okay to say, Here's where my little boundaries are and to say it in a gracious way that doesn't upset the donor. But I think it's also OK when a donor is really interested in what made you want to be in this role and beyond just saying, well, it's a great opportunity to serve the so and so to really kind of come and say, you know what, I'm so sick of not having good health care in my community. And I thought, 
I've struggled too hard with my own autoimmune issues. And that has really made me personally invested in wanting to to work with people such as yourself to do that. What about you? You know, are there things that, so I think it's just looking at where those personal ties are that bring you to the table, because that's also what brings your donor to the table. I love that kind of role play or practical advice around how they weighed in. What about if a donor does get uncomfortable? What about if a donor isn't ready to talk about this for whatever reason, or we touch something that's too tender and they get uncomfortable? How can a fundraiser back out of it or shift the conversation and shift the energy in that moment? And the reason I'm asking this question is not because I think this happens very often, but because I think the fear of this happening is big. And so I think if folks know and maybe have a few sentences around how to shift should this happen in an unlikely scenario, they might be more confident to wade in. I think that's, yeah, I think always having, you know, sort of prepare for the worst and hope for the best, right? I mean, I think it is good to have your backup plan. But I always always say just lean into being a human. So often it can be uncomfortable, just like when we work with people after doing giving after or in the midst of a spouse dying or after they die and they're doing some, you know, they're dealing with estate or they're dealing with things, you know, trying to memorialize a spouse or something. All of that can be really difficult waters, choppy waters, right? We're not quite sure, you know, if we're going to drown stepping in there. But I would say the thing is to just approach it from being human. So if, for instance, someone says, I really want to support this children's program because I had this experience when I was a child. And you say, well, what must that have been like for you to, to have that experience? That must have been a tough loss. If they come back and say, you know, that's just not something I want to talk about. Or you see their face suddenly just go down and you feel like you have pushed the conversation in a place that they don't want to go. I think you just be a human. I mean, that's certainly how I've handled it. I've never had a donor get so upset or angry. They tossed me out of the house or said they'd never give or anything like that. I would just say, oh, I'm sorry. I didn't mean to hit on something that it looks like it might be a little too painful for our conversation today. And to be open. I think sometimes the tendency is we don't know what to say. And so then we start putting our foot in our mouth. And then also we sometimes read body language wrong. A great example of this, Mallory, and that comes up a lot is Let's say you're working with someone around a death. They've lost a loved one. And often we don't want to mention the person's name because we're afraid if we say something that's going to trigger. And yet I found most, but certainly not all, people who are grieving a loss that are in that really griefy period, they want people to talk about their loved one. They want that, you know, say their name is actually really important to them. But if it happens that you just say, what was important to her if you're talking about something where there's philanthropic giving in memory of someone? And, you know, it just turns out that all of a sudden you, the person just breaks out in tears. Sometimes we can react to that like you did earlier. It's like, oh, my gosh, I didn't mean to do that. So part of it is also just saying, I'm right here. I'm sorry if I brought up difficult emotions for you. If you want to talk, I'm here. If you want to just have a chance, kind of take a deep breath, I'm here and just literally give a pause. Um, but I would just say, be really upfront and just really human. And I think people will appreciate that. And I really say that because, again, sometimes we just misread the reaction and we think we've done a bad thing when, in fact, we've actually just opened a door that they kind of want to keep walking through. But if they don't, you just kind of say, hey, I'm sorry if I touched on something that was too painful at this time. I can only imagine how difficult this must be for you. And please don't hesitate to say, time out, Kimberly. 
I really appreciate that. And I would say I even add that human tenderness into the permission piece. Like, I don't want to overstep or please tell me if this feels too tender to talk about. But if you do want to, you know, but I'd love to learn more about your sister, or I'd love to learn more about your experience with blank and just giving people really permission from the beginning to decide their level of comfort in sharing with you. And I've done that when asking for money, not connected to grief or legacy, where I've said, you know, this is the most uncomfortable part of the conversation for me. And it's such a sacred and important part of it. And so I'm wondering if we're ready to open up a conversation around X, Y, and Z. And just that sort of laying that groundwork and being a vulnerable human, I feel like has really invited an opening for the donor. And the answer isn't always yes. But actually the softness of the no shifts when that's the framing around it too. Like, it's like, you know, I so appreciate how you opened that conversation. I'm not ready yet, but let's do X, Y, and Z and then blank. And it's like, I don't feel this like, oh, I did the wrong thing. Cause it's like, we're still in connection. We're just navigating those waters together. So, okay, I want to make sure I leave time for this piece because this is a question or these are circumstances that have come up actually a fair amount of times inside the Power Partners Formula, which is my signature program where a fundraiser is navigating the loss of major donor of theirs. And sometimes there has been a legacy gift already established, but sometimes they were in the middle of a multi-year pledge. Sometimes there have been like the pledge was made when now that the person has passed, it's clear that maybe they weren't and they know the reason for the passing and they wonder if the person was totally clear of mind when they were making the pledge and that decision. There are all these very complicated giving experiences that often can happen around the loss of someone. And so I'd love to talk a little bit about sort of how you navigate that space with family members that you do not have a connection with, that you do not have a relationship with in a way that leaves space for their grief. Like, how do you think about the timing of communication there, the frequency of communication? What changes when we're in that grief process? Yeah. You know, and that's an area that isn't talked about a lot until you're in that landscape and sort of like no man's land of what we're doing here. And it comes up in so many ways. There's the relationship aspect. I've certainly had more than one situation and I always have encouraged donors to make sure their family, their spouses, their children, grandchildren are aware of legacy giving, right? So we don't have family members coming out feeling really upset that this part of this estate is going to a charity instead of to them, right? All these kinds of things can come up. You also have time where donors have told you they're going to do something and you're like, okay, did we make it in the world or we didn't? What I'd like to do before I actually directly respond, like once you're there, I just want to put out one little, before we get to that point, I realize this doesn't help if you're suddenly there, but I do want to say, and this was a huge learning curve for me because it can feel so awkward when you're working with donors during life, but I can't underscore what a gift you're doing, not only for your organization, but for that donor and their family who will be around after they are gone to deal with legacy giving, estate issues, all that. And that is to really kind of confirm and validate and make sure you know what you have before the donor passes away. So a great example will be 
well, Bob and Molly said that they're putting us in their estate plan, they're in our legacy group, but we really haven't. So awkward. How do I really confirm? Are we really in the will? You know, that kind of thing. There are ways and it can feel uncomfortable, but I've worked with some organizations that do that very well in terms of when somebody is doing it to say, we would really love for you. It will help make it easier for your family. It's a great way. We can thank you while you're alive. So Things like just kind of making sure that you know what donors have actually done so that after the fact, you have some ground to stand on. I really want to say to anybody listening, this is very tactical, but kind of important. If someone has you right now, we do a lot of you know encouraging people to be listed as charity, as a beneficiary of a retirement plan, 401k or 403b or an IRA or some financial account. Again, if a donor is doing that and letting us know, like we have some awareness or we've even pitch the idea to them and they're saying they're doing it, it's kind of important to actually try to find out what is the company, like what is the firm? Is it Ameriprise? Is it, it sounds awkward to ask for that level of detail and if possible to get a copy of a statement or an account number, because I can tell you when you're trying to get those assets after the donor is dead, I can tell you some entities will make you jump through weird hoops where you have to have this information, even though they know you're in the estate plan They need you to give them certain information that you may not have. And then you've got to work through the family to kind of get this. And it just, and sometimes there isn't family. If they didn't have family, I've had these things take a couple of years to finally work through. So I wanted to just kind of put that out. There are things you can do before you get to that point. We can talk a little bit later about looking back and saying, hmm, was that donor okay to make this commitment at that time? That's sort of if you're wondering about their health status or their mental health status. But if you just suddenly find yourself, somebody has passed away, I would say if you've been aware and hopefully you have of family or the family that's closest, I find it really simple. Just again, being that human shortly after the fact to just reach out with a little handwritten note and just say, I'm so sorry for the loss of your mom, your daughter, your aunt. You know, we really cared about her and we're going to miss her. And if there's anything we can do, let us know just to reach out with no anything other than to just be in that space with them and the loss will help. I think then as you are starting to work through questions, you need to figure out like who is actually the person that's involved in the estate plan. So often you'll have situations like, let's take donor advice funds are a great example. You may have a donor who had a donor advice fund and maybe they had some privileges for kids or grandkids to have those advisory privileges after they're gone. But the donor also had some criteria about the kind of organizations they want to fund. And sometimes one generation has very different ideas about how they'd like to use that money than what the donor had. And so that can become very awkward for a charity because you're there to honor So often we're like, well, let's see what the kids think. But if the donor said, hey, I really want to support, and sometimes you'll see these big political divides between generations. Do I want to support this more conservative cause? And they want to support something that you just think, well, during life, the donor would not have really wanted. So sometimes those things, and as much as you can have those conversations while the donor's here helps. But I think when you're looking in the aftermath is to be careful because sometimes let's say the oldest daughter will turn up and you'll have this impression like that person is the one who's really administering the estate and they're not. They may or may not even be in that estate plan. And you may be giving that information because it's family, right? But if you don't know the dynamics of the family, there could be some game playing there. And you hate to think that, but I'm just saying it does happen. So I think as you step into that place is if there's something like a will in most states, 
if there is a will, you can, and if you're in the estate plan, you're going to receive notice from the estate. You can often track it because it's probate is public. You can find out and often get a copy of the will. But ideally, once you figure out that there is a child or grandchild, or maybe it's the attorney for the donor, whoever is actually the personal representative or executor of that estate, or if it's a living trust, it could be a trustee. That's when you do want to do practical things like request a copy of the document. If you are in a will, living trusts are private, but if you are in the living trust or you have some financial interest in that trust, they are required to share the trust with you or at least those portions of the trust that pertain to you. So it can be awkward. And yet the way to remind yourself is you're just simply trying to fulfill your donor's intent. This is not me being greedy for my charity. This is the donor intended to do something meaningful. And we want to just make sure that we understand what the intent was and that we can fulfill that intent. So sometimes it does require being really practical about learning more about the estate itself. I think when you look at things like uh, multi-year pledges, again, I know smaller organizations especially can feel very uncomfortable with pledge forms that have very much legalese on it, but you want to really ask yourself as a charity, do we want our pledges to be enforceable through an estate? If so, that's language that can go in the document. That's a conversation that can be held with the donor. It feels awkward, but then when that time comes, it saves you a lot of sweat and tears and awkwardness as well. So if the donor had set up a pledge and there was no indication, and sometimes it depends on laws in certain states and the family dynamics and other things that are in the will, maybe support that. But that's where having some technical support with planning can be helpful. So I have to say, you just have to lean in, but start always as a human, reaching out to the loved ones just to let them know that you give them condolences and that your heart goes out to them and their loss and let them know how much their person meant to you personally and the organization. As a human, if you do that early on, just because it's the right thing to do, when you start having these other awkward things, you have already had some communication. So it's not like the first communication is, hi, can we get a copy of that will, please? Right. So the relationship, the connection, the multiple touch points, and then working to honor the legacy of the person that you had the relationship with in any way that you can. Is there a question I haven't asked you that I should have asked you about all of this? It's such a big topic. It is a big topic. I mean, there's so many ways to come at it. And like I said, you've got the technical side and the human side. And you've asked some great questions. And I hope this conversation is truly meaningful to those listening. I think to maybe just close out our conversation is to just kind of remind people that when they're sitting down at any stage of that donor relationship, to just remember that we're just two human beings who perhaps share a passion or a concern or an empathy around a certain cause or a certain program, whatever that is. And to be open to the possibility that Each person has a donor story that they may or may not really even know consciously themselves that is driving that philanthropy. Giving away money is completely illogical. You know, Sandler Rule says for sales, and it's even more true with philanthropy, people buy with their heart and use their brain to justify. So sometimes you do have to have the data and the results and the outcomes. That's a part of it. But to really start from that place of what really matters to you What's meaningful to you? What do you want all that you've spent your life doing? What is the impact you want it to make and leave for others? And to just be open to the idea that there could be somewhere inside that giving story, a little kernel of pain, a little kernel of loss 
that they may or may not be sharing with you that you are embracing without even knowing it. And to just follow the donor conversation and not be afraid to ask a few caring questions that allow them to open if they want to or allow them to stay totally on the surface if they want to as well. But you'll actually be helping a donor if you can get closer to that little kernel of what is truly motivating their desire to give, because that will enable them to really think about, yeah, what do I want my money to do that's meaningful to me? Because again, just aren't really asked that question or really thought long and hard about it. So often we're just giving them a menu of things and to be able to start from what's really meaningful and then look at the shape it takes, I think can be rich. And as a fundraiser, at the end of the day, Getting invited into somebody's life in that kind of a, a personal way is a very rich gift. That and I, and I look, and that's when I look. There's times when we tear our hair out with this work, right? But then there's other times when you realize, wow, I get to do this kind of work. I get to link the people who want to change the world with the people who need help and have the vision to do that. That's a pretty cool place to be. That's a great intersection to be hanging out in. Yeah, there's so much of legacy giving, especially in the way that you talk about it and that I've been learning about recently or planned giving that is rooted in so much of what I believe good fundraising is, which is an opportunity and a way to accomplish goals together that we both want to see resolved. And I think when we think about fundraising as this like charity, ego-driven activity, it can make conversations like this a lot more uncomfortable because, because we feel like we have to give some level of instant gratification as opposed to really understanding that this is about the person's identity and yes, how they absolutely. You know think about their footprint on this world. So I'm so grateful for all of the ways that you talk about this very complicated issue for the space that you hold for all of the different entry points and getting big and vulnerable and then also super tactical. So thank you so much for this conversation. Well, thank you so much. It's a pleasure to have this conversation. Thank you for all that you do. I hope maybe in some of the uh programs that you offer, you can try out some role playing and, and so people can work on some of these nuanced conversations. I do hope that your listeners have found some value out of this conversation. Thanks so much. Absolutely. Where can folks go um, just to learn more about you, follow along, learn from you? Where should they head if they want more information to connect with you? Yep. The best place is my website, which is poetowl.com, poet and owl, two words together.com. And I have all kinds of information, resources, and I'm continuing to build out more resources there as well. So um, that's a good place to look for me. Amazing. Thank you so much, Kimberly. I so appreciate this you. conversation. Okay, there is so much wisdom inside this episode, and I really wish I had heard this conversation when I was an executive director. Here are a few of the top things that I'm thinking about. Number one, it's important to explore your own experience with loss and death and grief to better support donors who may be dealing with these things. And if you haven't experienced them personally, doing what you can to build empathy for the experience that they might be having. 
Number two, lean into conversations about legacy giving and end of life planning as they can be really transformative and meaningful for both fundraisers and donors. And I love the takeaway and tangible advice that Kimberly gives in this episode about how to walk into those conversations. Number three, Don't be afraid of vulnerability in these conversations. That can create deeper connections and understanding between you and your donors. Number four, you don't need to know all of the logistical details and tax information about legacy giving, but be specific and detailed when you're promoting products or services or tools related to legacy giving or end of life planning. You can help donors easily find the resources that they need to help them make decisions and move forward. And then lastly, encourage your donors to think beyond just financial contributions and consider the impact and meaning of their life while they're alive and after they're gone. That's what really can root legacy giving in something incredibly meaningful. Okay, for additional takeaways and tips inside this episode, head on over to MalloryErickson.com backslash podcast to grab the full show notes and resources now. You can also find more information there about Kimberly and our amazing sponsors, Donor Perfect. Thank you for spending this time with us today. If you enjoyed this episode, we would love it if you would give it a rating and review and share it with a friend. I'm so grateful for all of my listeners and the good hard work you're doing to make our world a better place. And if you miss me between episodes, stop by and say hello on Instagram under what the fundraising underscore. Have a great day and I'll see you next week. Hey you, I hope you're loving all the free value you're getting right now from our guest. And speaking of free value, I've raised millions in the nonprofit space without sacrificing my integrity or my alignment. And I'm sharing how I did it in my free webinar, how to harness the power of prioritization to raise more without burning out. Go to MalloryErickson.com backslash workshop to register for the free training right now. I cannot wait to see you there.